1: and welcome to another episode of the Alisa Unfiltered Living Life Out Loud podcast. My name is Alisa and today is Wednesday, May the 26th. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you so much for choosing this show and pressing play and showing up. Oh, you are in for a treat. This is arguably one of the most impactful conversations I have had in a long time. I love all the guests that come on the show. Don't get me wrong. They are all impactful. But for me, this, um, this subject matter and my, I can call her my friend, my friend, Sarah Roberts, who is the guest today, she has such a powerful story. And every time she tells it, it's one of those stories that gets me every time. So let's get right into the show today. I mean, I woke up on the right side of the bed. I feel jazzy and good. How about you? <laughs> Are we ready to get into this? Because my guest today, her name is Sarah Roberts, like I mentioned, and she is a woman in long-term recovery from alcohol addiction. And the interesting thing about her story is that once she got sober, she transferred that addiction into a sugar addiction. How interesting. Is that checking off any boxes, any lights, dinging, 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 Uh, sugar addiction, sugar addiction? So... Following that, she embarked on a 20-year healing journey and became a certified health coach in order to share some of the best of what she's learned with others. Now, the shame of both her addiction and her recovery, right, because there was a lot of shame in the the falling into the addiction to sugar, which we do talk about, It, it kept... It kept her playing small in her life. And over the years, she uncovered a powerful mindset that's allowed her to create a massive paradigm shift in the way she sees her health and her body that has become the foundation of her work today. You can see why we are good friends and why she is so amazing. (laughs) Sarah is passionate about helping others avoid the pitfalls that kept her stuck. And she's on a mission to help people ditch diet culture, love it, and embrace food freedom, love it even more, in order to experience greater joy and freedom in their lives. Woo! I think it's important to say that there is some very impactful subject matter within this podcast, but also I want to give a small trigger warning to anyone with addiction, alcohol addiction, and self-abuse issues. Okay, let's get started. Here we go. My friend, Sarah Roberts. All right, Sarah. I'm so excited to have you on the show. How are you doing today?
0: Oh my goodness, I am so excited to be here, Elisa. Thank you so much for inviting me. I have no complaints today. Today is a good day.
1: Oh, isn't that the best? Oh, that's so good to hear. I love that, I love that. Um, interestingly, you and I, I wanna just give the, the the listeners a little context about how we met because we've, we have some mutual friends and we've never actually met in person, but we have been On Clubhouse together. And I just think it's so cool that, you know, this day and age, we can make connections with people that are like minded and from opposite ends of the world. So tell me, like, how cool is that?
0: It's the coolest.
1: Mm -hmm. I honestly
0: feel like, with all of the challenges and all of the changes in the world over the last decade, 50 years, 100 years, what I think is beautiful at this point in history is that we. Are able to do this. Mm-hmm. That, um, I had a talk show for for a couple of years, and the and the last line that I would say on my show was: No matter where you are, and no matter how it feels, you are never ever alone. Mm. And I stand by that because I feel like we are in a world where everybody thinks they're the only one going through something. Mm-hmm. And now with this power of technology, we are able to connect more readily with people from all corners of the globe, as you mentioned. And now we really can say to ourselves, yeah, we're really not alone. And I think that if there's any message to be shared at this time in history, it's that, that we are not alone going through this. We feel like we are, we think we're the only ones, we think everyone else has everything together (laughs) and we're the only ones failing. And that's just not true. And, And these ways of connecting prove it, that you know what, we all need support, we all need connection, we all feel the same things.
1: Oh, yeah, I, that's great. I it's it's so interesting too. like our some of our conversations that we had on Clubhouse in our little group, uh, which we were on Clubhouse on Thursdays at noon. That's a shameless plug uh, that we really talked about self-care and self-love and food and nutrition and health and what health is. And we dive into so many really creating boundaries, so many really interesting and um, interesting topics with so much, uh, so, such a diverse group of women with different experiences all coming together. And there's always that similar message, but spoken in their own voice. And it's that's one of the things that I love about you the most is your message and your voice. And I would love to jump right in here and give the listeners a little background on you. like. <laughs> Tell us about yourself please
0: Oh thank you I appreciate the, the moment to do so um, so I am I'm, I'm gonna be turning 49 this year and mm-hmm. uh, when I was 29 I hit a rock bottom in my life mm-hmm. so prior to that I was somebody working uh, you know in, in the corporate world I was being promoted mm-hmm. in my career uh, things on the outside would have appeared completely normal, really good. Um, You know, I I had my own place, had had my own life. I had everything going for me, again, on the outside. And yet, if you peeled back the curtain and you saw my daily life, what you would see is a woman who was truly struggling in her life, in her identity, in her sense of self, in addiction, Mm. and I was a nightly drinker. I wasn't somebody who tended to wake up in the morning and drink, but I was, you know, it's sort of labeled as high functioning, if you will. Uh. And so I was someone who went through each day just waiting for five o'clock, could not wait for that time to come. And I pretty much drank every day from the time I started drinking. My first uh, taste of alcohol was when I was 15 years old. Mm. And I remember the feeling of, oh, there I am. Mm -hmm. Oh, this feels good. Like this I can get on board with. And so from the age of 15 to 19, I dabbled with alcohol and it started increasing. And by the time I was 19 years old, I was fully addicted, drinking every single night and thinking that it was normal. I was raised in a home where we celebrated with alcohol. We commiserated with alcohol. We yep. we did everything with alcohol. Yes. We, um, we had lived in England for, for several years when I was a child. And so all of my childhood homes, my parents built pubs in, in our home. And we literally had like the full on pub really? where... Lots of company would come and we had lots of parties and fun times. And I saw this celebration and this romanticizing of alcohol. And I believed it was a rite of passage. Mm -hmm. I believed that it was just the way to be an adult. And I absolutely couldn't imagine a life without alcohol and never planned for a life without alcohol. I didn't know how I would do life without it. But at 29 years old, after over a decade of heavy drinking, so every single night Mm -hmm. I drank, blackout and a lot of my friends would say to me yeah but like we drink too and i said yeah uh when we leave the club or the restaurant or the bar or whatever or your home you go to bed and i continue to drink alone mm-hmm. and so i'm 29 years old and i'm out for dinner with a friend and really dinner was mostly just wine mm-hmm. and i made the um the awful decision to get in my car And there was an accident right across from the police station. Within seconds, it felt like the police were there. I was handcuffed, thrown in the back of a cruiser, spent the night in jail. And looking around at those four white walls, thinking to myself, what in the fuck have you done with your life? And what are you going to do? I traveled for my job. My career was literally overseeing seven territories. I had to tell my boss that I chose to tell my boss that I um, was quitting uh, to fulfill my lifelong dream of going back to business school, which I had started years prior. And that was not my dream. I was planning on just staying at this company and I was being groomed to become partner. And I just sort of laid that on him and he was confused and and distraught and like, what do you mean you're quitting the company? And uh, that's what I did. I hid the fact that I had gotten this DUI and that I had lost my license and that I could no longer drive or travel for work. And I just decided to go back to business school because I felt like that was a place that could house me for a period of time while I didn't have a license and while I was trying to pull my life together. Mm -hmm. I knew looking around at those four white walls in jail that I absolutely had no choice but to quit drinking. Of course, there was a choice to be made. I could have continued to drink, but for Mm -hmm. me, it was so paramount in my family that appearances had to be upheld Mm -hmm. that this devastating incident could not just be brushed under the rug. It could not just, you know, I couldn't just continue with drinking because I knew that it was going to be seen for what it was. And what it was is that I was a highly addicted person who needed help. And I Mm -hmm. needed to stop drinking. Alcohol was the thing that brought me to my knees. And as much as at the time, I was devastated and I found myself in the fetal position in the days afterwards wondering, what am I going to do with my life? And that's when I cultivated this plan to go back to business school and move across the city and move in with my then boyfriend who helped me out so much. And I appreciated him so much for doing all of what he did to help me get through that dark time but that's what I did to get myself through that experience. And, and I knew I needed to lie about it to a lot I mean. of people. I couldn't be honest barely with myself and I couldn't say the word, I'm an alcoholic. I just, I couldn't bring myself to saying that word even though I knew deep in my heart that the truth was that I was someone who could not mess with alcohol. It was something that was off the table for me. So I got sober in shame and my, not only my addiction did that cause me shame, but my recovery caused me shame. Mm. And that's what I think is incredibly problematic in today's society, mm-hmm. that we, you know, that we, we we almost put people down and criticize them or judge them if they can't continue to take this highly addictive, toxic neuro... You know, there's neurotoxin that we keep putting into our bodies. No judgment against anyone who drinks alcohol. I really don't care what people choose to do. But it is a neurotoxin. It is something that is so incredibly highly addictive. And yet we say, but don't you dare get addicted. Make sure you are responsible with this highly addictive drug that we make an F ton of money off of. Mm-hmm it's really similar to the way that we were marketed to with cigarettes yes and we'll get into this but it's exactly the same playbook that the junk food industry the highly yep. processed food industry uses as well yes. how can we create a highly addictive incredibly cheap and ubiquitous product that will get people coming back over and over and over again because of what happens to the reward center in the brain basically the brain saying let's do that again that's That's amazing, that's that's fantastic. And so that's really my story. I was 29 years old, hit this rock bottom in my life, chose to use it as the place to push off and create a whole new life for myself. And four or five days after getting sober, I really started realizing, wow, I am sort of downing tubs of Ben and Jerry's ice cream every single night. Pretty much the same way I was drinking, but I felt justified. I was like, "Listen, I'm not doing my drug of choice. I'm not hurting anybody over here. Just eating this yeah. ice cream." And mm-hmm. so I continued with that for months and months. I would send my boyfriend to the to the store to get me, you know, chocolate peanut M Ms and ice cream and you know chocolate bars and anything that I was craving because I felt so justified and I felt so craving, and I didn't know what to do with with these feelings. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really started to learn more about nutrition and uh, and the brain and how addiction transfer works and that my brain was simply, you know, really adapting from not having that alcohol. It needed something else. And as we all know, of course, you know, as such an amazing coach that we don't quit habits we replace behaviors Mm -hmm. and so all i was doing was replacing the alcohol with the sugar Mm -hmm. and so i went on this huge journey this huge wellness journey that i'm still on that i'm always going to be Mm -hmm. on it just keeps evolving as i evolve over Mm -hmm. time and i just feel like it's the best place in the world to be and that my way in was addiction to alcohol but other people's way in can be work gambling sex scrolling, eating, drinking, whatever it is. And that can be our way into ourselves that lets us then do so much more exploration and healing. And I think that's a really big key to all of this, Elisa, is we don't do the things we do for no reason. Mm-hmm. We do them for a reason. And for a lot of us, we're using outside substances to heal inside pain. So it's not really, it's it's really about, about trauma is where it really goes back to. And so many times when I'm working with my clients, they'll hear that word and they'll say, I had a great childhood. I had no trauma.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then we
0: go back and we remember that when we're in grade six and that boy made fun of our lack of breasts or that person made fun of our horrible looking legs or that, per- yep. these things stay with us. Mm-hmm. And we sometimes... Uh, you know have some maladaptive behaviors around trying to manage or heal or or soothe those parts of us and what we need to do is really look back and say whose voice was that and do i even believe that we need mm-hmm. to get into our beliefs that of course then create the thoughts that then create the, the habits and the, the behaviors in our lives that then can become habitual so for me it was a lot of um, childhood emotional neglect and uh, this is not in any way to to trash my parents. I loved my parents. They do did the best job that they could, and they were the exact people I needed for me. And there was a lot of neglect there. And so when I started working with therapists over the years, I started uncovering this. And at first it felt awful to be feeling like I'm throwing my parents under the bus. Like, yes, but they did the best they could. And that is all still true. And there were wounds there that needed to be healed, that I was healing with alcohol, plus I was in a culture and an environment of glorifying alcohol my whole life. So there's that too and Mm -hmm. the habit of it and this highly addictive product that I'm putting in my, my body. But it's really been about that healing journey for me to get to that other side where I'm no longer feeling like I constantly need something to fill that void or to soothe that pain. I've been able to, to get to that other side and to be able to then share what I've learned with others. And that's what's so beautiful about this kind of work that I, I know you understand as well.
1: Hmm. Okay, There is a lot of unpacking to do with what you just said. That was unbelievable. And I know that part of your healing was with uh, food and nutrition and health, but I want to just kind of backpedal a little bit here because something that sort of struck me was... Uh, how your recovery caused shame and I want to touch on that a little bit because I I feel like there's many women out there and men who are maybe even they don't know if they're in the recovery process but they're somewhere along the journey where they feel like they're moving in a different direction they don't know if it's a right direction they feel shame while they're doing that or they've had to pivot or change but there is that shame there and I I I'd like to know your um, opinion or story or belief around why that is. Why is it that when we make positive change that we do feel bad for it?
0: Mm. Oh my goodness. Probably so many reasons and they're probably so individual. Mm -hmm. I think for me, uh, so a lot of my shame came from I was no longer able to do the thing that I identified Mm. as me. So I was a drinker. That was my identity. I had built myself up. My tablescapes were all around, you know, like the the liqueur we're going to have, after the wine we're going to have, after the beer we're going to start with, after the vodka, you know, martini we're going to everything was wrapped around alcohol we went out to celebrate everyone's wins and successes and if someone had a breakup we were out you know supporting with the wine and we were doing that of it course. literally was my identity and I think for smokers I was also a smoker mm-hmm. and you know I was I was a smoker and so I didn't want to even listen to anybody telling me oh smoking's unhealthy it's bad for you yeah yeah, yeah. can you seriously like, like yeah. no one needs to hear that stuff yeah So I think what makes it hard is that we have cultivated this identity around being this person. We see evidence all day long to support our decisions and and our identity. And then so to break away from that, it feels so, you know, we feel so untethered when we break away from an identity and try to grab onto another one we're sort of like in limbo like it's almost like we we're holding on to our old life with one arm and we're sort of reaching to the other and we know at some point we are going to have to let go And it's so fucking scary. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we let go and we trust and we believe that on the other side, this thing that keeps coming into our minds and our hearts, that's the better way for us to be. We don't want to necessarily be drinking addictively like I was. I didn't want to be a smoker anymore. Someone that's talking about health and wellness. I I had started eating well and exercising and doing all these things and I'm still smoking. Mm -hmm. So I had to tear away that part of my identity because I had built up this other identity so big in my mind and in my heart that it made it easier to make that leap but i'm never gonna say that it was easy it was Mm -hmm. some of the hardest work that i've ever done to let to leave that old life behind and to accept and embrace that new one with all of the unknowns that came with it Mm -hmm. i didn't know how to be this other person it was just all trial and error and again why I try to help other women do this because we don't know how to do it. So if somebody's got 10 steps ahead of me, I want to know what they did. Like I started following everybody to find out what did they do to get that extra little edge farther, that little bit farther to close to that goal that I'm looking to achieve. What did they do? Because as we know, success leaves clues. So when I'm watching other people, and how they figured it out, I tried to navigate my own way. And I think it has to be personal, but I think we can use other people's experiences as a bit of a roadmap to help us to get there. So mm-hmm. I think that at the crux of it is it's an abandonment of the identity and it's believing that there's something else out there that's better, but we don't have proof yet. And that's so scary.
1: It's so scary. And the loss of identity piece is so scary. And it's really interesting. Like I've had two loss of identity Um jolts, jabs, punches in the face, whatever. But I, I like the word rock bottom because when for me, when I lost my identity the first time, that was like a very deep pit, pitted bottom. The the bottom, the worst. And then it actually got a little bit deeper. Uh and you've you've actually gave an example um on one of our chats on Clubhouse about rock bottom that I loved and it was how everyone's rock bottom looks a little bit different. And I would love for you to expand on that um, piece because oftentimes a rock bottom is sort of the catalyst to change and start looking at your life in a more healthy, from a healthier perspective. It's not always, but I would say the majority of the time it is. So can you explain that a little bit?
0: I think that we each get to decide what, our rock bottom is. And mm-hmm. and so again, uh, when I got sober, so I had to take a course with, I'm going to say there were 15 other people in the room with me. We had all gotten DUI. So this is driving under the influence. We've been charged. We now have a criminal record and we all have to take this class to talk about things, to teach us about alcohol, the, the dangers of drinking and driving and all of this stuff. So yes. I arrive in a suit and high heels because this, is, this has been my uniform <laughs> for however many years of working in the corporate world. And I am around a, a group of people who don't necessarily look like me and we're all sitting in this classroom and the instructor starts talking and it becomes very clear very quickly that I am the only person in the room who saw my DUI as my rock bottom. It is very clear within about 15 minutes that everybody else has already been not only drinking that day or the night before, but they are absolutely continuing to drink. It's not even a question. Yes. And so in that moment, I remember thinking to myself, wow, like this was such an obvious, you have to quit drinking. Like to me, I saw again, those four white walls in jail, I saw my life like two paths. Like I could keep going the direction I was going and I would be dead. Mm -hmm. Or I would go this other direction where I had no idea where it was leading me and I was going to live and it was gonna be different, but I was gonna stay alive. And that's how I saw those two roads. That's how I saw my life. And in that class, it was so crystal clear that I was the only one feeling that way. Mm -hmm. So I remember looking around the room, just sort of gobsmacked thinking like, everyone else is still fucking drinking Mm -hmm. like this was not the wake-up call for them that it was for me and then i had to remind myself huh yeah holier than now that you've quit drinking and they're all still drinking and what the hell are they doing i had had a (laughs) lot of whispers Mm -hmm. i had had a lot of Mm. bricks on the head and i had a lot of the walls come crashing down Mm -hmm. and those were not yet my rock bottom So I think that rock bottom is so incredibly personal to everybody that I remember um, Jane Lynch wrote a a book, I think it's called Happiest Accidents or something like that. And she said, my rock bottom, you know, I got, I became an alcohol, I don't use the word alcoholic, by the way, to label myself anymore. I used to, I no longer do. I'm a woman in recovery uh, from alcohol addiction. But Jane Lynch said, you know, I became an alcoholic on Miller Lite like she's like (laughs) I was not the person stumbling at every party I was not the person taking my clothes off and dancing on the table and doing all the crazy things losing my license and getting into trouble with with the law and none of that happened for her she she raised the bottom if you will she brought it to a place where so many of us would say you like what's wrong what what do you mean you you drink a couple Miller Lights once in a while Mm -hmm. and for her it was like it was so obvious that she needed to get rid of alcohol from her life because it was robbing her of her vital energy. She wasn't waking up with bright eyes. She was feeling like she needed to do this thing every single day. So I think that, excuse me, for everyone, we can really just simply define or decide whatever rock bottom means to us. And there are a lot of people that don't like that term, rock bottom, or they'll say, I didn't have to hit a rock bottom to change my life. Absolutely true. Mm-hmm. I use the term rock bottom, meaning for me, it felt like there was no farther to go mm-hmm. down in my life. I had lost everything. I'd lost my job, I'd lost my car, I'd lost my identity, mm-hmm. I'd lost my apartment, I'd get rid of my place. I wasn't working. I you know like yeah. I felt like I had lost everything, like every piece of my life just was it fell to the ground and I had nowhere to go but up. It was it to me that's how it really felt. To other people it can just be these little whispers, these nagging voices in their head saying You know, are you really happy? Mm -hmm. Is this the relationship you really want to be in? Mm -hmm. How are you lighting up the world? Are you using your gifts that you were given? Do you love your life? Mm -hmm. Do you love what you see around you? You know, are you happy inside? Do you wake up with joy and energy or is every day a struggle? I mean, I think that it can truly be quite a lot simpler than a lot of us think. I think a lot of us are waiting Sometimes Ooh. For the big thing to yes. happen. Yes. And it doesn't. And so we just keep going along with these habits that don't really mm. serve us, but they're not that bad. And it's kind of everything our friends are doing. So why change things? And I am just here simply to say, no matter where you are and no matter how it feels, you are allowed to change, we are always, always allowed to change. And who gives you that permission? You do. Mm. You, we don't need permission from anybody else. Again, it's so tied to identity, and breaking free from identity is so uncomfortable because all of our friends tend to be people who agree with our way of being, and they like the things that we do together, and we're all friends for common reasons. And and so, to all of a sudden be, decide that we're going to change and do things differently it's really tough and that can be really shame inducing too where we feel like we don't know who our friends are going to be we don't know who we're going to be mm-hmm. if we decide to take this leap so I, I think it's it's multifaceted shame and identity and and all of that is so multifaceted it, it's it's really individual
1: Hmm. I there's something to be said about connection, personal connection, being able to hear those whispers a little clearer and being able to start to understand what you value and how you actually feel in sobriety, being sober. And I I I I'm not completely sober myself. However, I drink very rarely by comparison to, you know, my 20s. I used to drink all the time. I am likely an alcoholic. I am likely a high functioning alcoholic. And there was a point in my life where I was like, felt so disconnected um, to my own self and to my truth. And I would numb myself. I knew I was in pain. I would look for like you said, to a glass of wine with my friends because it it suppressed the hurt. And it suppressed the things that I was shoving down there because you can't be angry. You can't be sad. You can't be not perfect. And um, it's really interesting how much my healing has pr- happened in being sober. And I didn't connect those dots for, for years. And um, it's. It's it's quite a glorious thing. So I want to get into that because oh, the other thing that I loved that you said was the waiting. We're waiting for something. And I that also resonated so deeply with me because like when I was in an abusive marriage and I was waiting to for my knight in shining armor to come and show up and save me. I wanted someone to do it for me. I was just waiting. And and maybe over time things get a little easier. My wounds sort of are less up at the surface and oh that waiting game is so <sighs> common I should say I don't think it's normal I think it's common and it, there's a difference between that like waiting and sitting in your shame is it's not normal we're not meant to do that but it's so common because we've been conditioned to do that I don't know if that distinction is resonates with you but I want to get in
0: Yeah, I think that for so many of us, you know, you were talking about feelings, Mm -hmm. we believe that the only feelings to feel are the good ones, and I know that that for me was my upbringing. It was, you know, smile, and I think a lot of women especially have this good girl, like be the Mm -hmm. good girl and do the things. I, you know, everything in my life was performative and i had to really peel back all of that and to start realizing that so many of my behaviors were rooted in shame the, the, the feelings of me not wanting to show who I really am. If you really knew me, mm-hmm. you would not like it. So I have to always be presenting with my representative. And it's what really messes up relationships and spe- specifically the ones with ourselves, but also all of the other relationships in our lives. And one thing that I've just become so passionate about is making sure that I am living my life that I am not living always for other people. I have learned a lot about setting boundaries. I've Mm -hmm. learned a lot about disappointing other people. If you asked me in my 20s, what is the worst thing? The answer literally was, a friend asked me this when I was 23 years old. And I had no idea where this answer came from. I didn't, I still think it's amazing when these things happen. (laughs) My answer was disappointing other people. Mm -hmm. And now I make it a, habit <laughs> almost to disappoint other people as many times as it takes reminds glennon doyle reminds us of yes, this yes. in her book untamed which is a must read
1: yes but disappoint
0: book. other people as often as it takes to avoid disappointing myself it doesn't mean i say no to everything and tell everyone to just figure it out yourself i'm not going to help you and no i'm not doing that and i can't do that thing and mm-hmm. forget at you and i don't have relationships It's that I make sure that the choices that I'm making are coming from a place of authenticity inside of me and not because other people only want something for me or want me to fulfill this role or they keep me in this place in their mind and in their life. That's where Sarah is, oh, she'll do that thing. Like she's she's always good for that. Like she'll, no, I I have learned so much about creating boundaries in order to respect myself and when I am in a place of self-respect, the choices and decisions that I make and the way that I conduct myself in my life is completely different than when I am in shame, letting my representative go ahead and just and call the shots. And so I was gonna say, I'm passionate about getting to the end of my life, not feeling like I let somebody else live this one life that I get. We get one. Mm. This is not a dress rehearsal. It's so cliche. But I think that my, my experience with addiction and rock bottom and really reinventing myself has shown me that truth, that we get one. So I am really tired of everybody, myself included, caring so much what other people think and what other people do and the way other people are and not caring enough about figuring out, you know, Mark Twain told us the two most important days in our lives are the day we're born and the day we figure out why. Mm -hmm. I truly believe each and every one of us has innate gifts inside that we don't cultivate, that we don't even find because we're so busy being the image of what other people think that we should be in the world. Mm -hmm. and that needs to stop if we're ever really gonna get ahead of this mental health crisis we're in if we're Mm -hmm. ever going to be able to get away from Mm -hmm. the the food industry you know beating us up we can't give me a break we're going to talk about food but we cannot even come close to to being able to push back on the food industry when it is a $72 billion industry. Like that's just the diet industry. And let's be real. The food industry owns the diet industry. Oh yeah. It's all been done by design. It's, it's so insidious and it has to stop. It has to start with us. Like it has to stop. And the way to get all of that noise to stop is not by telling them to stop making noise. That's not Mm -hmm. gonna work. No, It's truly about going within and really reconnecting with who we are and why we're here. I don't really know too many people who are incredibly fulfilled in like all areas of their lives because they're bringing forth those beautiful gifts that were implanted in them from moment one that are really struggling in a lot of areas of their lives. Like they're really saying, this is me showing up for me Bringing the best of me forward, and we all know we love the people who do that. So let's be the people who do that.
1: Ooh, I, that was good.
0: me on my soapbox.
1: You know what? <laughs> Honestly, that was a perfect segue because we need to talk about food here and diet culture and how food uh, is marketed. I, I mean, I. This is one of my favorite subjects. It's something that I mean, I am a recovering clean eater gluten-free sugar-free dairy-free workout eat less exercise more uh fitness person really and i (laughs) i mean i worked with being on the Canadian freestyle team for eight years, I've worked with some of the most credit um, accredited trainers in the country and sought after trainers from around the world and nutritionists and dietitians and doctors and everyone always had the same message. I would sit there in a lab being tested, getting skin fold and like being told that there was too much skin there. And I'm like, how does that affect the way I'm going to compete in moguls? Like what, it was it's so interesting how these but that's the way it was and so I had this blind faith that this industry knew what was best for me and I would go with the flow is what I said but I really wasn't going with the flow I was going against my own flow for their flow (laughs) so let's talk about that
0: as an elite athlete, like, uh, you know, I I do not have that as an experience. And I can only imagine, I remember listening to uh, Tom Brady being interviewed Mm -hmm. and he talked about his body as his asset. And, you know, he can't feed it with a bunch of junk food and be able to perform at the level that he wants to perform. Certainly Mm. at his age, he's getting older as an athlete. And, um, and I respect that. I really respect that. And I really respect the way that I, uh, approach food in my own life and and food and fitness and wellness and all all of the things yes uh, we can talk about I believe there are five pillars of health that pretty much all health people can agree upon and but then it gets really nuanced and it can get really dark it can really like there are the Tom Brady's of the world that's not like Joe Schmo on the street and me and like most people like even you as an as a lead athlete like, mm-hmm. we don't have that that experience mm-hmm. so I I I say that because I am somebody who absolutely believes that these vessels that carry us through our lives from the day we're born to the day we die, deserve our love and our care and our respect. And so I cultivated this mindset shift. It's a paradigm shift that I use with my clients that I really just naturally gravitated towards in my own experience where I started looking at my body as an animal Mm -hmm. because it is an animal it's a human animal with specific physiological needs and so it allowed me to push back on diet culture and say listen i'm not interested in you know cutting out this that the other thing if i don't need to if there's no you know allergy or, or sensitivity there But I am somebody who wants to look at processed foods and the way food is marketed to me and how it arrives on my plate and my engagement with it, my feelings around food, I really wanted to explore. And so that's what I've done for almost 20 years. I've really gone on this journey where I look at my body not as, you know, I I, I tend to not look in the mirror and say, you know, how does my butt look today? How do my arms feel today? Yeah, I'm not really interested in that. Um, A a healthy body is a byproduct of doing things that make us feel healthy and well. Mm -hmm. And for me, that that um, that that shift, that mindset shift of seeing my body as an animal, it simply became like a tool to help me make the choices that I wanted to be making that I wasn't making but that I wanted to be making. It made those choices easier to make. Mm -hmm. So for an example, when I'm sitting on the couch eating tubs of Ben and Jerry's and I'm feeling like crap, I would wake up every morning after I'd gotten sober and I'm eating all this ice cream and junk and chocolate and I'm waking up in the morning feeling almost hungover, And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I feel almost worse now than I did when I was drinking. Like this is not, I don't think this is it. And so that was really the, the entry point for me on this wellness journey. I started reading voraciously about nutrition and health and wellness, and then it became a certified health coach down the line. And so that idea of looking at my body as an animal lets me prioritize the water. So yeah, 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 we're all supposed to drink water. Okay, so so people come to me as a, as a health coach. They say, okay, Sarah, listen, I want to work with you. Um, But here's what I need. I need you to give me the plan, the diet, the protocol. You need to keep me in the lines because I cannot be trusted. So please just tell me what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and that is what I want from you. It's gonna be great. And that is not what I deliver, it's not what I do. I don't write meal plans, I don't give out diets. Uh, I believe there are almost 8 billion people on the planet and there are 8 billion different diets. We each get to decide what works for each and every one of us. That being said, there are these pillars of health that if we honor them, this human animal says, awesome, I've gotten what I needed. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And it can go ahead and do the work that we want it to be doing, that it is doing 24-7, 365, and it's able to do it at such a more optimal level than if we don't nourish it well. If we never rest, if we never do any self-care, do some deep breathing, go for a walk in nature, eat some green things, right? Like we gotta sleep, we gotta eat green things, we have to drink water and we have to rest and digest, live life. And so, if we can get away from the the number on the scale, I recommend to everyone to throw the scale in the garbage. Yeah, um, it's literally useless. We can our weight can fluctuate up to five pounds in one day. And honestly, folks listening, if dieting has been a struggle for you, I get it. But it backfires every single time. And please hear me when I say the processed food industry. Let's backtrack a little bit, just quick. Yes. Uh, it, it, they're owned by the tobacco industry. So when the tobacco industry started getting all the fallout, people started to realize, oh, this stuff is bad for us. Nicotine, you know, tobacco is bad for us. Okay, let's buy Kraft and General Mills and let's buy all of these food companies and just use the same playbook to get people hooked on our food. Okay, great, so now they've done that and we're all hooked on all the junk food. Oh, but now there's an obesity problem. So then those same companies buy Atkins and buy the diet companies and they make the products that we're supposed to lose the weight on when we've gained it all. To give you a, a, an incredible example, um, it was Nestle who created these shakes, these, these milkshakes for people who had gotten gastric bypass surgery from eating the foods that Nestle got them hooked on in the first place, that got them sick in the first place. And so it's just if you follow the money, you tend to find your answers. And so if you want to push back on diet culture, I know that the the the, the feeling might be. To just eat all the fucking Oreos. Like I fuck up diet culture by eating all the fucking pizza, all the chips, all the Oreos, drinking all the stuff, doing whatever I want to do because I'm giving a big middle finger to diet industry, to diet culture. And I caution against that because I again want people as much as possible to connect yes. with that deep inner knowing that doesn't feel so good when we you know always flood ourselves with these refined highly refined carbohydrates that act like drugs in the brain that mm-hmm. light up the reward center even faster than heroin that's mm-hmm. what's crazy and they really they they hook us with a s- smell so like literally there are, you know, very well-paid scientists that are working yes. on this stuff to get us hooked, to, hooked on this food. And then again, we're left wondering what's wrong with us? Why can we not get off this stuff? And it's just this big, you know, this awful hamster wheel that we're all on. So I think that, you know, I, I, to go back to, you know, diet culture and the way that you were spoken to as an athlete and then the rest of us, what the heck do we do with all of this? if we can reconnect with who we really are with what we really value and bring those gifts out into the world, even in small ways, you know, you love gardening, but you just never, you live in an apartment and you just never have a chance to get a pot and just plant something and do that thing. Or, you know, you love kids, but you're not able to have your own children, figure out a way that you can do something with children so that you can bring them into your life. Like, I think so many of us are hurting and we're using food or drugs or alcohol or sex or gambling or scrolling in order to soothe that. Mm -hmm. And if we can get to those root causes, we can then start to truly utilize the tool of the human body to help us live these long and vibrant lives that we all want but we kind of have no idea how to get because it just feels so hard. Mm. So if we can push back on a bunch of the noise out there and get back to these five pillars of health, water, real food, sleep, exercise, which can just be walking yep. uh, and reducing our stress in as many ways that we can, which if you cover those four, usually you're not left with a ton of stress, but then you know, some deep breathing, some yoga, some meditation, We can literally live such good lives. They can feel so much better. And I think that's what you and I are in the work that we do in the world to do. Just we know how good it can feel to let that Mm -hmm. stuff go and to bring better things in, to create this new identity that feels so much more aligned with who we really are, that we get to live out the rest of our lives, not with our representatives, but with truly the fullest, truest most beautiful version of ourselves and the whole world benefits.
1: It really really does. It really really does. And it does Okay, so if I'm a person who's like so into this conversation and I'm it's vibing with me and I something that you know I really sense in you is uh, this level of willingness to observe yourself and to bring, up, I call it the practice of awareness, to be able to observe yourself without judgment to the point where you can see, oh, this isn't working, and admit some of the hard things to yourself. You don't have to outwardly admit it, but inwardly admit that, okay, this isn't right. And when you talk about diets not working, I totally agree with that messaging. Diets um, are strategically marketed, as you said. And I find it really interesting, the mentality or the mindset that if I'm not on a diet, that means I can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and eat whatever I want. And even this is for all things, how we like, if I don't do it, I must the, the right thing to do is the complete opposite. And even when we're talking about disappointing other people, it's like, if I stand up for what I mean or what I want in this life, or I say, or, or I disappoint as many people, if I stop, you know, the uh, people think that they have to go all the way to the other side of that and everyone's gonna hate them and they're gonna disappoint every single, and there's no like how you were mentioning in the middle, it's like, no, it's connecting to your truth and standing in that. And learning what's right for yourself. And I, I'm sure you've talked to many, many people who are making these, connecting these dots in their lives because that's really what it is. Sometimes swinging to the other side is sort of a, a necessary step to remember or to be reminded that, OK, you know, that's that's not That's not where I need to be either. (laughs) I mean, you had that great example about alcohol to sugar. Same sort of problem, different, but it looked different. It was presented to you differently.
0: And, you know, Mm -hmm. I love what you're saying. And it's like with alcohol, for me, it was I again, I didn't know who the hell I was going to be without it. So it was so scary. Mm. And when it comes to food, here's the trouble. We don't need to drink alcohol, smoke cigarettes or do drugs or gamble or some of those other things that we can become addicted to shop we need to eat mm-hmm. so it's something that we, need, we to eat. need to learn about and yet i say those words and it's like scratch that we need to unlearn everything that this, that yes. society has piled onto us to, that, that it's taught us about about food. As you know, I have an app called Food Freedom. It's not quite out yet, but it's getting there. Uh, we're just, we're testing it right now. And it's the simplest app. I keep having people that are testing it that are saying to me like, so does it link to this and does it count my calories? And like, will it help, will it, will it uh, go with my Weight Watchers and count the points and will it track my macros and will it? No, it doesn't do any of that. Here's what it does. You put in what you eat and then it notifies you to tell, to tell yourself, how do you feel?
1: Mm-hmm. That's it. So good.
0: That's it. If so we good. can connect what we do when we drink water, when we eat food, when we exercise, when we call a friend, when we, you know, you know have a good night's sleep with how we feel, all of a sudden, we can start to naturally begin to build trust with ourselves because we're all of a sudden starting to listen when we used to just listen to the outside extraneous yes. noise telling us what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to feel, how we're supposed to go through life. When we can bring it back to ourselves, everything changes. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it's like we can just make the decision when we can see in black and white in this app or just use a... pen and paper and do it for yourself it's how my students have been doing it for years like we just track the time of the day what we're eating or drinking and then 20 minutes later an hour later whenever some feelings start to come up write them down how Mm -hmm. do you feel mentally emotionally and physically Mm -hmm. when we can connect those dots everything changes so we don't ever need to go on a diet because we're never on anything and therefore we never need to come off anything Mm -hmm. and i think that's a big thing for people where If, you know, it's that feeling of, well, if I'm not on something strict, then I'm just left to my own devices and I can't be trusted.
1: Oh, I hear that so much. Oh my God. Yeah. Yes. Mm. So, so, so much. Okay. One of the, before we wrap this up, I do, there's a couple of things that I really wanted to pick your brain on because sugar, we, we have touched a little bit on sugar, uh, even just with my observations with sugar. Uh, Yes, I believe it is addictive to a certain degree. Yes, I have a very bad relationship with sugar or I have, I should be, I'm in recovery, sugar recovery. I was pre-diabetic, but that was one of the easiest things to eliminate, or at least I don't fully eliminate because I allow all whole foods with natural sugars, Um, but I try to avoid, I try, avoid's the wrong word. I try to make choices that don't really have that refined sugar because I feel so shitty afterwards and it's like it's it's so black and white for me when I when I don't eat sugar I have energy throughout the day I and it yes it's hard yes it's so hard to peel away from that connection or to detach or to like really get through those first I don't know couple of weeks sometimes it's even longer for me if I've had a lot of sugar continuously but I, I want to know sort of what your um, take is on sugar, how people feel, and what do some of your clients or women that or men that you work with, uh, how is their relationship with sugar?
0: great question. So sugar is really sort of where I made my way in. Back in 2015, I wrote mm-hmm. a book called the 28 day kick the sugar challenge because Ooh. I was starting, I had gotten away from sugar. I had embarked on my journey. I was 29. I was really feeling good. Things were going well. Mm-hmm. And then I, um, I did a, um, like a, a private tutorial with uh, New York times bestselling author, Peggy McCall. And we were going to be creating my memoir so i was in her home her beautiful home and we had cool. this lovely lunch that was catered and we were all sitting around and we started talking about chapters and what i was going to be writing in each chapter and we started working on that and we got to go out in her beautiful backyard and start to write our chapters it was great beautiful day and i came home from that experience and within the next few days i started writing my memoir and as those stories started coming out of me I was sending my now partner, who was, was also with me back then, I was sending him to the store to buy me bars of dark chocolate. Mm. And then I'd be whipping up a few extra recipes of my, you know, peanut butter cookies and my, you know, blah, 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 muffins. And, my, and all of a sudden I started realizing that this, this unearthing of these painful stories had turned back on that desire for more and more and more sugar to soothe those painful emotions. Mm. So I packed up the memoir and set it to the side and I made a decision. I said, you know what? I had already done a candida cleanse. Um, I I was diagnosed. I had candida five years prior. And so I had done like a a 30 day candida cleanse, which is incredibly strict and very difficult, but I felt so great during you know, after a few days. And then afterwards I felt so good and I was really limited on how much refined sugar I was bringing into my body. Just again, feeling like, you know, I felt so good. I like treating my animal really well and I didn't want to do it. And so this experience of all of a sudden the sugar started coming back, you know, you know, day after day, week after week, I was just eating more and more and more of it and starting to feel worse and worse. And so I decided I was going to do a 28 day And i called it the kick the sugar challenge and i just put it out to my followers on facebook who would like to join me for 28 days going sugar free and i got about 100 people that wanted to join me and i thought cool so we did a little facebook group and we all started on this journey and so many of us went 28 days sugar free love it and we do bring berries back after 14 days we bring we bring berries back but other than that we're pretty much staying sugar free and it's incredible how many of the hundred were able to go 28 days. It was hard for them, but I think about 75% of people were able to make it the 28 days. And so many would say, this is the first time I've ever done anything, you know, for 28 days. Like this was so hard. And in the and so then I decided to write a book based on that experience. So sure. that's, that's where the book came, came cool. to be. And so some people say, you know, oh, Sarah, so she like never eats sugar. Like, you know, that's the way she is that was a 28 day experience and I talk about it in the book that most of my life is lived in what I call the maintenance phase. I just kind of keep going with that, but that nothing, nothing is off limits. If I become allergic to something or sensitive, then sure. And I mean, I'm not so great with gluten. I don't feel so great with it. So I tend to avoid it. But for the most part, nothing is off limits. If I want pizza, we get pizza. If I want chocolate, we get chocolate. Like that's how my life is structured i needed the reset and i do believe Mm. in a reset i really feel strongly that for a lot of people it's a way for them to uncover just how sugar sensitive they are yes and while i am somebody who is able to have a chocolate, you know some dark chocolate on a tuesday and not again for another week I do eat lots of natural sugar. I do make lots of yummy natural recipes. I'm not even going to say I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. You seem a lot more strict with it than I am. Like I Like most days I'll be making something yummy and delicious. It's yes. just made with either dates or bananas or something. But I'm making something tasty because I love that stuff. But I do believe that if we can take that step out just for 28 days or even just for a week, yeah, Just to recalibrate taste buds a little bit, a banana has never tasted so sweet after you go <laughs> even a week without it. Mm-hmm. That being said, for a lot of people, the withdrawal is horrific. It can go as long as two weeks. Yes, We're having night sweats. We are cranky irritable we have headaches like you can't believe we can't sleep we have no energy during the day the list goes on acne breakouts oily skin that was part of my experience um and i just want to sort of say like so it's not addictive at all (laughs) if the hallmarks of addiction are tolerance and withdrawal (sighs) we get both with sugar we Mm. literally see it added into our food insidiously by the food industry without us knowing. We didn't know, right? 60 years ago, Harvard scientists were paid to hide their findings. These scientists were, were put out into the world to tell us that saturated fat was at the root of all this heart disease when really the findings were sugar. Mm. So we have been lied to and duped and addicted over the decades by these food companies that we then still go to and pay our money because it tastes so darn good yes and so my work is truly you said the word awareness before literally that's all i feel like i ever say is just like <laughs> <too>. our awareness. <laughs> keep your eyes wide open mm-hmm. right if you've got your eyes wide open and you can see what's going on it makes decisions a lot easier i'm not saying it makes them always easier we have to remember We are living in ancestral brains that are constantly, constantly looking for the highest number of calories for the least caloric expenditure constantly Mm. it is their survival mechanism it's what they do and they're really good at laying down fat and they're really bad at releasing it and they're you know like they're just so smart and adaptive right when we didn't have food on the plains of africa we needed to figure out what we were going to do so the body had to learn these had to you know create these systems that kept us alive and so we don't need that anymore because of just you know the ubiquitousness of food But we do need to learn to get back to basics and to who we really are and what lights us up so that we can push back a little bit on the marketing. And that's why, like, I do feel that doing a bit of a reset, taking ourselves away from sugar, from so much sugar, uh, just even for a short time, can be incredibly helpful. So it is something that I recommend to some of my students. Some of my, my clients and students have found that they are so sugar sensitive. That Mm. even any sugar for them is like alcohol for me it's the thing that they just have to stay away from Mm. and people only learn this when you do your own work so again something like a food mood journal can really help you to see if every time you even have a handful of grapes you find yourself at the dairy queen drive-through you know for four hours later or you just can't get enough m ms or whatever this might be an indicator that you are so sugar sensitive that it might be worthwhile for you to take it off the table. Again, maybe just until we heal the gut and get ourselves to a, to a place where we're feeling a lot better and then maybe start to reintroduce it slowly. Um, but these are all things that, you know, can only be uncovered individually.
1: Absolutely, okay, so you are, you know, cause nutrition's so confusing and messy and complicated and you really take sort of, all of that fuzzy stuff and you, and you, <laughs> yeah. And you've, and you've completely, I don't know what the words I'm trying to look for here. You've thrown <laughs> it in the garbage. And I really love, okay. So I really love your app idea and, and food freedom, the food freedom app. I am so excited when that comes to Apple, you have to let me know. I, I need this app. This is totally, um, the app for me. And I know a lot of the listeners would resonate with that as well. But also I want to give you a shout out to your Facebook group too. one bite at a time on Facebook. It's so good. You post really great content in there. Super interactive. Lots of gems for Anyone that's sort of curious about this journey and are recognizing some of the triggers that we have discussed in this podcast and that you you have shared and it's like, "Oh yeah, that is kind of me." Uh, get in get in Sarah's Facebook group, everyone. One bite at a time. And then where else can we find you?
0: So, thank you so much for for the love and the shout-outs. <laughs> um I love going on YouTube, although I haven't been doing a lot of YouTube videos lately. I've been so busy. I didn't realize how much time the app was going to take i can't
1: even imagine build it oh yeah
0: (laughs) i wrote on a piece of paper like here's what i want go build it and they're like uh yeah we need to have a (laughs) few meetings So I haven't done as much on Facebook as I'd like to, but I do post videos of recipes and different things on, on, sorry, on YouTube. And then you can find me on Instagram, Sarah Talks Food, Facebook, Sarah Talks Food. That's pretty much where I I mostly hang out. And then my blog is SarahTalksFood.com and, uh, you know, over a million words written there. So all sorts of stories and just different things that have inspired and impacted my life and, and lots of recipes and all sorts of different things too.
1: So cool. So cool. I'll have all these links, obviously, in the show notes. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us with your wisdom. And that was such a great episode. I love you. You are an incredible woman and keep doing what you're doing. And you're inspiring so many people, myself included. Oh, What a great energy you are.
0: I feel exactly the same way. I can send all of those compliments right back to you, Alisa. Thank (laughs) Thank you so much for being in the world, for doing the work that you do and for having me on as your guest. It's an honor.
1: Have a wonderful day. Okay, I'm over here giving you a big virtual hug because you just finished another episode of the Elisa Unfiltered podcast. I cannot believe how fast that just flew by. And if you want more, head over to elisaunfiltered.com for show notes and all the links to all things Alisa Unfiltered. And if you're looking for a new crew of body love, self-care and confidence builders, just like yourself, be sure to join my exclusive community over on Facebook. The link is waiting for you at elisaunfiltered.com. Have the best day, everyone. Until next time.